welcome to episode 70 of Disciples of Agony. I'm Brian. I'm Stan. I'm Peyton. And I'm Emmanuel. We have a guest. <laughs> Sorry, old habits. No worries. So, who are you? What do you do? Well, why are you in my bathroom? And why should I listen to you? <laughs> I'm in my bathroom. You're in my room. Hold on. So, yes, my name is Emmanuel Class. Long-time podcaster, did a lot of podcasting and blogging in Mark II, was one of the co-owners of Hand Cannon Online, was one of the main hosts for Move from Play in all its various forms, and then also one of the hosts for The Leyline and various other faction-focused podcasts. And then now I am the host for Blight Makes Right with Charles Aerosmith over on Line of Sight. We're on Line of Sight, too. We're podcast brothers. There are. <laughs> awesome. So what brings you on to the Scornisode? Well, as a competitive player, I like to play all the factions and kind of get my feet wet wherever I can. I had flown into Milwaukee. You reached out on Discord and were like, hey, let's hang out. That's not creepy, is it? And I was like, no, not at all. <laughs> as I sit in my bathroom naked and um, <laughs> inside shows. Um so yeah, I went over your place and we played a game of uh, Rusheth wins triple battle engine versus Zal 2 with all the dudes and uh, it was a good time and now I'm here to podcast with you guys. Yeah, it was a lot of fun having you around and uh, now that I know you're in town every so often, it'll be fun. Um, anyone else got recent games? Emmanuel and I have the Rusheth versus Zal thing we could talk about a little bit, but do either of you want to talk? I know Peyton's got some fun and interesting <laughs> Payton, stuff. Peyton's got a lot. <laughs> I, I've actually, I've had a decent chunk of games recently. I went up to Vancouver to participate in a steamroller now that I have my passport. Those guys have been great about coming down to Seattle and Portland, so I wanted to go out there and support them. I was hoping to play Corey Doyle, but holy crap, the pairings in that event were weird. Like, he brought minions, and he got minions first round mirror, second round minions mirror also. My first game I played into Iona was pretty confident going into this. It was Iona with Storm Raptor. I tried to, uh, you know, win the mini battle that goes on in every game when you play Circle and assassinate Lord of the Feast, which is practically the caster. I left him on two boxes, and then he retreated for like two or three turns after that. Absolutely demolished him in attrition, killed a Storm Raptor, gave up a turtle on the left side in order to kill a Storm Raptor. And I think, I think it was like two Ravagers, and I ended up hitting the Oil Master just because I had nothing else to, to hit. Because I think that unit had a Phantasm on them, if I recall correctly. Cool, go up 2-0 on score. Things go pretty expected. Then he ends up clumping a bunch of Ravagers and his Chieftain on his flag. I see a monstrous spray with my Erratus as long as I can unjam him. I unjam him pretty easily. I can't remember with what exactly that that did it. Uh, maybe it was a Rasheth spell or something. Oh, I, yeah, I think what I did was I threw a Breath of Corruption out and I positioned it perfectly so that when the Erratus would Swift Hunter, I would have the whole cloud in front of him and the forest. So go in, do the spray, uh, check it out. I got like five models in there, including his Wolf uh, Rider Champion, Call, and like three Ravagers. Kill Call, kill the champion, pretty happy. And then every Ravager just either I miss or they tough multiple times. And uh, okay, if I back off, I'm pretty sure I win the game. I was far enough ahead that I could have just played for Scenario and made him run around the map uh, trying to salvage his left side and come and challenge our right. But I don't know if I tilt here 
because of my erratus or if I just think that I can make a bad situation right. I send in my right side turtle who doesn't have any tokens and I want to kill at least two ravagers and I go in and there's lots of missing, lots of toughing and I'm probably looking at a dead turtle depending on what he does. I repo as close as I can to just deny some charges I guess and pray for the best and unfortunately both turtles go down and I end up losing that game on clock. Of all things. Yeah. But, yeah, it was it was a pretty good game. I really enjoyed playing with my opponent. He took wonderful pictures and like wrote a blog up about the game. So it, it was cool to see his perspective. He did not expect a Storm Raptor to get dumpstered. So that was a good learning lesson for him. Uh, and then the put next. That, what's up? Put that uh, blog in the show notes. Okay. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and then next round, we continue the trend of mirrors. I look around every table and it's like circle versus circle, minions versus minions. Then I get scorn versus scorn. We look at our That's pairs where Brant and I are playing nearly identical lists. Like we have Jake's version of Zaltu. And then he has Resheth with Mammoth and Imperial Warhost and four huge bases total. And then I have the Winds version. So we're just like, shit, are we, are we Zalmir, Resheth mirror? Like what's happening here? And I, and I said, gentlemen's agreement, like, let's not play the Zalmir. I'm actually curious about the two versions of Resheth playing each other. Sure. So we go ahead and do it. Um, I lose my starting role as I always do. And we find out that it's very, very important going first in that matchup because um, when you're on the opposite end of those tremendous threat ranges and the ability for the gun line to just take out anything on the map with blood mark or feet down, uh, things get pretty dicey. So even without entering scenario, I still managed to give him one turtle. I had a weird obstruction in my deployment. In your and- yeah, in, in the deployment. So I, I think what I should have done when I deployed is just shift all three of my huge bases to match his mammoth side and say mm-hmm. screw it for the rectangle on the right. Like I can just keep running slingers behind the forest or something to contest it and be annoying and give that up because it wasn't a live scenario. Sure. And make sure I get all my shield guards on everything. But even with two Valkyries on the turtle that both toughed, he was able to run his pain givers outside of my castigate range and land a blood mark. And when you're on 16 and there's, I think he rolled three or four shots on the turtle on the mammoth. Yeah, the turtle dies. I see an assassination because he doesn't block or sheath off with a a turtle repo. Um, I calculate I can get like four or five slingers on him and my turtle who absolutely needs to roll well for shots in order to Mm -hmm. make make it possible and then a fully boosted erratus spray he's got castigate up obviously so i can't really do any spells it's Mm -hmm. just up to those models to hit things he's under kraya aura he's got one less dice it feels better in my head than i think it does but i think (laughs) after i crunched it at first i did something wrong it was like a one percenter but it ended up being closer to 10 Okay. Maybe eight, 8 to 10%. But, of course, my turtle rolls one shot. Or one on the D3, yeah. so I get two shots. And none of my slingers do any damage. And he's got a transfer left for the erratus spray. So I'm like, all right, this game is over. Yeah. I and mean, it's key, though, to recognize when you only have that 10%er and still be able to take it. Like, those are some I of think that was like, the right play. Yeah, that yeah. was definitely the right play because it was going to be four huge bases versus two. And... That's just, yeah, that's going to be rough, especially when one's a gargantuan on top of it all. Interesting. A lot of fun. Um, I forgot to take pictures. We mostly talked about the matchup and just other various scorn things. 
For sure. It's funny because I was listening to another podcast last night, I think, uh, with Jake on it. And he was saying, there is no reason for you to go first anymore. You should always be going second. And to hear that the Rashos versus mirror requires someone to go first is a, is a big deal. I really think in Scorn in general, where we have such high threat range, high speed models, outside of Exalted, because Exalted does not have that, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> But like in, in Warhost or in Winds, when we have something that threatens like two inches out of your deployment zone on bottom of one, if we go first, mm-hmm. uh, it's so incredibly important to go first, especially since Risha doesn't win on scenario usually that much. It's usually an attrition win, not I push you out of scenario. So it really doesn't care horribly about scoring first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need to be better about recognizing that at the, at the beginning of games, like when to seed scenario. I've had a few games now where I've been able to clearly identify it. Uh, I like I how mean, Brian was like, in the Scorn versus Scorn match, somebody has to go first. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We can't both go second. Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> can't we just gentlemen agree on going second? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go second to your second. I also think Jake's opinion is probably colored by his inability to play Rasha. And his inability to lose a fucking role. Like, I, <laughs> I've, won, I've won one out of my 50 last starting roles. Well, at the time, he had only played Zal 2, which right. is a difference. Yeah, Zal can project some pretty interesting threat ranges but the immortals and the spring guardian and all that are are relatively low threat range so yeah going second is better in a yeah. lot of ways but yeah like when we're talking the mikado list imperial host list that threatens two inches into your deployment zone top of two going second against that is kind of a hard thing to deal with yeah yeah but, with Rashad, you know, i usually feel a- fine I feel fine going either because he he can project his threat across the whole map with those slingers. And, range. Yeah, and he oh. can totally play out scenario. If that's not something you're watching out for, especially on the new ones, you can get ahead by three, four, even five, depending on what's contesting the zones. Yeah. As a Legion player, we had talked about the first versus second a lot, and I am a big proponent of going second because you get to score first. But the more and more I start to play specifically for attrition, which is something that scoring specializes in, in realizing how turn like seven play out or how turn five, six, and seven play out, I started to kind of math it out and go, is this the game that goes to turn six or seven? Like, is this the game that I need to be scoring last? Is this (laughs) the game that I need to be making sure that I'm going to get the final punch. And that has been a big swing for me on deciding whether I go first and second, how I think the end game is going to play out. Sure. Yeah. All right, Peyton. So go ahead and recap both of your... Co- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any highlights, though, from Mom Connor Bug Eater that you want to go over? So I want to talk a little bit about my final game at MomCon because I think it's a really interesting game. So it was Rasheth versus Harbinger. Yeah. The table was very inhibiting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're playing Spread the Net. There's a building in his zone that's touching his zone and the circle zone. And there's another building like 5.01 inches away from it in the center of the, of the circle zone. So I see that and I immediately know that I have to go second because I have to <laughs> pick sides. <laughs> there's also another wall on the table and he's playing in face masses so he gets to place another wall. And if you felt like killing yourself, you could also place your wall. So I placed my wall, but I placed it to the left side of the flag vertically instead of horizontally Mm -hmm. to protect because I figured he was going to deploy 
his Idrions on that side behind the building so they couldn't get easy lanes on them because they're easy kill targets. And I figured they would swing around that side and try to get to my flag. So I put as much protection I could with that solo, and it was... Having played the Harvey vs. Death game, that would be the... That was the fifth time, and I've now played it ten times. That game is so table-dependent. <laughs> sure. And I really... It was interesting watching... Trying to protect the Crusaders and choosing the correct choir choices every turn versus mm-hmm. Rochette, which is really interesting to do with Harvey. I would actually really like to play that game some more because I think it's a very important game, especially in our pairings that we're playing right now. Sure. I mean, don't uh, they have to do no spells? Pretty much the entire time, Harvey could get to a spot where the book was. She could keep the Arc Nodes out of my control range if I wanted to get Breath of Corruption on, on the Devout. Sure. In the late game, because of how well he can protect the book with the buildings. But hmm. that was one of the most interesting games I played. And then my game against Brandon, which was my other finals game. I hadn't played against Locke before. I played as Locke before. Yeah. And, and we were also on Spread the Net again. Um, <laughs> stop playing your finals on spread the net Jesus. <laughs> and it was a really interesting game i learned a lot i made some a couple of errors in timing and tilt so i could clear the center zone if i could have my eridus punch a liberator to death on feet turn and enrage it wasn't transmuted so i was looking for fives i hit once and i immediately tilted and sent the turtle in instead of killing a suppressor and it cost me the game scenario. Yeah. But I think that the Rochelle versus the Locke game is super, super close and super, super interesting. Yep. I, I don't disagree. I'm just, like, the more I listen to, like, we've talked about this several times, obviously, now. The more I hear you talk about Harbinger and Locke and, like, things that Rochelle is kind of struggling with, the more I'm happy that I'm running Mikata 3 in Imperial Warhost. Right. To be 100% honest. Like, it's just, it's like Harbinger is. Not necessarily a slam dunk, but if they make it's it's on them to not make the mistake as opposed to not on you. Right. And then like with Locke, same thing. Like if she makes the mistake, yeah, I think Yeah. I think <laughs> two Toros with Makeda three. Granted, like that was a little bit of dice swings, but at the same time it's just like also isn't that hard if you camp two or three. Right. It just isn't. So the ice cages are hard to get on you. Mm-hmm. Brian's like I've face-tanked a few things with Makeda. I don't necessarily recommend it because of dice, but it happens. <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, like, dice are a thing. And I really rely on my opponents rolling all 12s, and I rely on me rolling all 1s because it's more true than I care to admit. So, Watching um, you play at the LCQ, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you saw it. You saw it for reals. Hey, as, as long as you're not casting insight on, like, turn 1 and leaving yourself naked somehow... <laughs> I think you, you you're learning you're learning what to do. Yeah, it's top of two now. <laughs> uh, oh. So anyway, Emmanuel, do you want to talk about our game a little bit, and then we'll move into the main topic, or do you want to just kind of skim on over? It's up to you. It's going on scoring, so it's topical. It is topical, and it was all two versus Rasha, which he mentioned earlier. Um, the triple battle engine versus Jake's list. The we'll say more current one. Um, instead of a Kraya, you drop a Advocate and pick up a Shaman and a third Novitiate. It's a small change, but it changes a lot how the list is played for me. Because normally I'd kind of put the minimum unit with the UA on 
one side with the maximum unit and they'd all kind of like weight of numbers aside. Mm -hmm. And now I didn't do that because I don't have the UA, so I'm not relying on them getting Boreal and Greatness and all that. So I'm actually just using them to kill themselves and get the souls to where I need everything to be. And then, so you get a little bit more flexibility in the rest of the list. You get a little bit less weight of numbers. Turn one, basically, we run up. A manual deployed differently than I usually do with that list, and he did turtles on each flank and Supreme Guardian in the middle, and then kind of loaded one flank with the AD stuff, the Sentinel and the Slingers. Mm -hmm. And so, I ended up going first, right? Oh, yeah, yes. go ahead and talk about your deployment. Well, I was thinking, like, we have a house, like, right in the middle of the table, and I, what I thought was a second house turned out to be a destroyed house. Um, <laughs> and so oh um, I deployed thinking, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to trigger his vengeance early with my slingers and have him move into the center of the table and then wheel my left flank to try to press him against that wall. So that way I catch as much in the feet as possible and then I can angle the Supreme Guardian, which you put on your right flank, which is my left flank, as far away from Rasheth and a lot of my juicy stuff as possible so you can't just blanket them with fire. And then knowing I'm probably going to have to give up one battle engine, um, there's not a whole lot in that list to screen with. So what do you screen a battle engine with? Another battle engine. So exactly, yeah. commit one battle engine in, try to kill troops, and then have that between me and the Supreme Guardian. That way when you commit the Guardian, my other battle engine kills the Guardian. So that was my initial thought on deployment was mostly just like, where am I going to position and where do I want you to be? Yep. And I just kind of did two wide units. I spaced Zal and the Supreme Guardian far enough apart that direct spirits would pretty much cover the entire board no matter what I did. I misdeployed my immortal vessel, but that was because you got to AD your slingers. So I, I had to redeploy him essentially top of one. Or, but yeah, then top of one, I just kind of ran everything forward. My bronze back hung back a bit. The Supreme Guardian hung back a little bit. And then, like I said, my immortal vessel basically switched flanks so that top of two, I could start arcing some annihilations into his slingers. And then I was thinking I would probably feet top of two, force him to feed bottom of two. It'll suck for me top of three a little bit, but I'll still be able to get some stuff done. And then I should be able to hopefully do enough work in that time to get enough of a attrition lead that it wouldn't matter in the long run. So yeah, top of one, mostly just running straight forward. Emmanuel, if you want to describe what you were thinking and doing, bottom of one, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this game wasn't super compelling. And like, it's basically you feed, I feed, I punch in, we see how the dice go, you punch back, we see how the dice go, because we both have an attrition-style feat that mine helps me punch up, and then against your punch down on the following turn, I thought it would go pretty well. Problem was that on my punch-in turn, I rolled abysmally. You did. We get in there, and basically two of my three battle engines don't do anything. So it's not looking great, but I do get some work done. I get a lot of your troops off the table. You move in around Rosheth to where, like, I know that I'm probably going to have to eat some of those swings anyways. Even with transference, I feel like the minus four and the drop of dice, I'm probably relatively safe with a, a transfer or two on me. But I certainly didn't see that battle engine on that flank doing nothing. It was like, oh, the difference between like half a unit and a full unit is pretty drastic. But then we sing back to your turn and you have a very similar turn. Yes. So he kind of jumped ahead a little bit. Bottom of one, mostly just running forward. You, you do trigger vengeance on my leftmost unit. And I triggered vengeance on both of them, didn't I? Yeah, on yeah. both maximum That was units. intentional. So I just kind of advanced forward, but uh, in doing so on the left side, I was able to clear the lane for the Immortal Vessel, who then runs forward 
I cast Annihilation. There were three, no, there were four Slingers under the Annihilation, two of which were in his direct spirits, but two which weren't. So Zal got those. He got two souls, but they were all removed from play, which is actually kind of important. Um, mm-hmm. So I did that. I engaged his turtles, or his left turtle, from my perspective. Uh, his left turtle, I put two immortals on the same side to prevent, you know, um, the spears from just completely clearing it out. And then engaged the sentinel, the remaining slingers. And then I ran one dude to contest his zone because we were playing on standoff. Or no, 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 bunkers, the new one. The totally not invasion or incursion, that's the word. And so I mispositioned here a bit. He was able to get five of those immortals. And I kind of just, on my rightmost side, moved to threaten the flag, because he didn't have any solos on that side. So I knew he couldn't control it, but I could the next turn. His turn, like you said, he feeded, came in, took a defensive strike from the Supreme Guardian and the Ancestral Guardian, and the Ancestral Guardian rolled Fuego, and both of them were outside of Rashad's feet, so they both rolled, between the two of them, did something along the lines of 20 damage to the Siege Animatrics. 25 damage. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. Two defensive uh, strikes. And uh, he was able to kill, like I said, half of one unit, but the other unit was pretty much untouched because of my feet. And like he said, relatively abysmal rolling. I mean, really, there was two big ones, which was the turtle. Was it missing uh, uh, an immortal? And then rolling snake eyes on the one immortal he did hit with his tail because he didn't have any rage tokens, so he couldn't buy additional attacks. Yeah, so that list only had the one unit of pain givers. I was only able to load up one of the turtles. And it didn't matter, though. My turtle with four rage tokens didn't do anything either. <laughs> it's true, but um, I, that's why but the Spring Guardian was out of feet. So you were dice off four or five, but I also had vision on him, too. So, you know, I negated the charge attack, and then it's difficult. Yeah, so anyway, difficult times for him. I kill the turtle. Don't clear the right flag because I miss or failed to break armor a couple of times on one of the Valkyries, but push forward. You, you couldn't have got to the back Valkyrie anyways. I basically positioned them to where I knew that there weren't enough attacks for you to uh-huh. get to all three of them and not use range attacks, and then I could pawn off to the other ones to make it so that you couldn't get to one of them. That's fair. So yeah, we both scored one at the end of his turn, I scored one at the end of my turn, and then um, we kind of just discussed from there because it had been a while and we were getting food. So <laughs> it was an interesting thought process. At first I was like, there's no way Zaltu can win this game. But if you time the feet right, force the feet from Rashef, and yes, he kind of had some bad rolls, but we've talked about this several times, where when you're running triple huge bases or, or kaiju or things like that, every single roll is super, super important. And just a couple of rolls going bad can throw off the entire turn slash game for you. So it was interesting. Zaltu just makes it a little bit more interesting than I thought it would have been. Definitely. We definitely came to a point where it was about even on the table, and uh, on my turn, it's like, okay, how much do I kill this turn? And that would basically determine the game, and so we kind of talk it out and math it out, and it's like, well, can one turtle kill a bronze back with minus two armor? Maybe. Yeah, it was a so maybe. I think we kind of shook it. Yeah, we did shake it, but yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting thought process at the very least. Definitely, a lot of learning. I'd never mm-hmm. played um, Rush Death Triple Battle Engine either, and so one of the best ways to learn a competitive list is to play it, and you'll know a lot more about how it's going to do. You know, you can never have too much practice in his all either, so it was a, as a double win for me. So anyway, now that we're only talking about games, <laughs> um, let's talk about our main topic. Fail back, I guess is the word that we're going to use, right? 
Um, okay, so l- let me reiterate this. Yeah, you let's do say, this. Let's sure. say the, the topic for today is dealing with a stale dojo inside your oh. faction. We don't want to go ahead and start calling half the factions in the game stale. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, since this is kind of your little baby, uh, what would you define as a stale dojo? So, to me, it's going to be... And, and Emmanuel might fight me on this, but with Legion and Primal Terrors, a lot of players feel like they're either stuck in a double prim- Primal Terrors pairing or that their off lists are, for the most part, known and that they don't have much room for experimentation. Like they just have to deal with the meta as it is. So if Callus 1 is your main list, you're just going to have to figure out how to play Callus 1 into your 60-40s or whatever lower odds matchups and then figure out a list in your pair, most likely for Menoth, I would assume would be the most logical thing there. Trolls is another good example of that. I have a lot of troll players in my meta or ex-troll players in my meta and A lot of the new people coming in are like, I'm going to figure out this faction. I'm going to find the stuff that no one's playing and it's going to be great. And I'm excited about so-and-so caster. And then they come back to me in a few weeks and they're like, yeah, so it's just called Grimma, isn't it? And for the most part, yes, like she's like holding up their competitive pairing. Mm -hmm. So these are just examples. But in terms of actual staleness, it's going to be you fighting the tools available in your faction to answer the current meta. And if you are crutching on one popular list, then it makes it a lot harder for you to find ways to innovate or to find ways to put a little twist on your pairing that won't make you weaker than you started into the current meta, if that makes sense. Putting the score in perspective on this, when we were sort of in this position, it was when it was... Rasheth wins with the Reavers, um, kind of pre-CID, but also like for that full year, year and a half between the 2017 and the 2018 WTCs, right? Like yeah, we're talking... exactly. So for us, that was the example. We had that Rasheth list, and then um, for a while it was a Dash Imperial Warhost paired with it. We saw some Xerxes II Drake spam, which, you know, if you want to fill a pillowcase full of doorknobs and play the game, that's that's how you do it. <laughs> that's that's an interesting way of putting it, but sure. But you know, the, <laughs> your design, your design there was okay. Rasheth needs to play into almost everything, and mm-hmm. I need to figure out what my off list can do to cover the few things that Rasheth can't play into. And you didn't really have the wiggle room there to tech your Rasheth list to make it better against a certain thing, because wins is pretty narrow in terms of what you can put in there and what you can do. Like your turtles are your melee anchor. The list doesn't absolutely crumble on scenario. You have reavers that are going to get a couple of turns of shooting, but you don't want them in melee. Yeah, the goal was to stall scenario, not to win on scenario. Exactly. And yeah, it had the tools to beat, at the time, most of the big medalists. That was back when Denny 2 was kind of popping up, and that was a rough match. Oh boy, was that a rough one. But staleness is more like, not that you can't run other things, it's just you're, when you do run other things, you are significantly handicapping yourself. You feel like, at least. It's when you hit the dojo trying to find something new to combat whatever meta shift has happened, and you're realizing that like your best tools are already known, and there's not a lot you can really dig out to change things. So, Emmanuel, <laughs> since you're in this stuff, how do you fight things like that? Like, do you feel that that's true? Do you feel like your your dojoing is, or in general, 
the the Legion Dojo is kind of becoming a bit stale? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I'm generally against the whole idea that a faction is stale or that anything is unplayable to the point to where, like, oh, I just don't have this option available to me to play this faction. So, like, the example I would give is that Charles and I both come back to Legion, right? And everybody's basically like, the only way to play Callus 1 is the way JVM plays. <laughs> and so it, it, it's the perfect one. People were literally saying you can't mess with perfection. And then Charles was like, well... Look at the gargantuan here. It's a big sink and mostly just buffs. So why don't I put three heavies in there that are undercosted, that do a lot of work and offer different tech? And suddenly the dynamic of the list changes and mm -hmm. it works, in my opinion, even better because it gives you more positioning. It gives you three huge or large bases, two of them which can't be knocked down. So now you flex better in the middle and they're sprinting heavies. You get go labs, you get all the tech. And then we start seeing people run it. And then yep. I dig real deep into minions and Legion and go, okay, what's the competitive discernment here? What's the one thing that I think offers this list that edge? And so I picked up Fayana too, and I was like, okay, Fayana gives a defensive bonus. So Bongai and Snapjaw have Starcross. If I put the two together, suddenly I've got additional synergy. How do I build a list around that? Build a list into it, and then people go, why aren't more people playing this? I play Thags 1 uh, really, really heavily right now. It actually switched from being Children of the Dragon, switched from being my off list to my main list because I like the list so much. A lot of people were saying, if you play Thags 1, you have to play him with the Raptors because they have poison bows and then weapon masters and they're fast and they benefit from, you know, Fog of War. And I said, yeah, but you're playing into a game plan I don't think Thags wants to play in. What if we put in double protectors? Now we can play it into the Crucible Guard matchup and the Menoth matchup. I've got fire immunity. I've got three heavies. I've got the ability to assassinate Harvey. Okay, well, let's take the double protectors out, and we can put in shamblers and packages of incubi and double dip on the bodies, and then I can put in a um, misspeaker. He can give all the shamblers plus one, and I can stationary things for my main targets, and suddenly... I'm looking at my list going, I don't have a single current meta list in any of my war room right now <laughs> because none of those things were what I felt I needed to be playing, what I felt played to my play style, which play style, like Pagani used to get on me for this all the time, play style is kind of a nasty word because everybody should be able to play multiple play styles to be flexible in each game. You shouldn't be inflexible as a player. I get that. But personally, I like to play heavy for attrition and I'm very positioning heavy. So I said, how can I make those lists play to me rather than me trying to play to them. And I think that more players need to do that. They look and see whatever the current meta list is and they say, this is it. It doesn't get better than this. This is perfect. And they don't mess with it because either the math or the points work out. Or I've just noticed that War Machine suffers from a symmetry virus where people will look at a list and say it's perfect because it looks right. You know, they'll look at it and say, this has double this and I like that. This has triple that and I like that. And that's fine. And it might look nice on the table, but are you maximizing your potential based on your choice or are you maximizing it based on your aesthetic choices? And so I don't think that Legion's stale. I don't think that any faction is particularly stale. I think that people just don't dig deep enough. Back in Mark II, we didn't have the mentality that some CID was going to save us or was going to rotate the meta or anything like that. You looked at what your faction had. You looked at what the problem was and said, how can I solve this problem? And if you couldn't solve that problem, how can I play around it? Like, what are my abilities to play into this matchup? And it made us better players because we weren't crutching on anything other than player skill.
this is part of the reason why I thought it would be an interesting topic to have you on our cast for, because <laughs> one, I, I really appreciate going into Legion, and I'm not going to point out names, but some people will just say, so-and-so is unplayable, uh, you know, you're dead into this faction, or you can't change this list, you have to come up with something else. And then you guys come in, and you're just constantly trying new things, and if you're able to recognize what the core of the list is that you need, and then be able to shape the outside to combat whatever mm -hmm. meta challenges you come across, you're able to innovate. And I'm bringing up the staleness as more of a, if I, I could define it, instead of the faction being stale, it's it's a mentality, right? Absolutely. Like, yeah. All of us have a limited number of themes and a limited number of models, but there's often minions to look at. There's often unique combinations of things. There's often cases where something usually suboptimal might be optimal in a certain situation if it's going to be a key tech piece or uh, swing your odds slightly in a matchup that you need to be able to win. We have a term for that. We used to use a lot on Remove from Play, which was competitive discernment. Being able to take a list and say, this one change will change the way this list plays or change the way it plays for me. And I think a lot of people will discredit that and they'll look at a list and say, well, you only have one different unit than this other list. And that other list is superior because it won this or it optimizes that. And I would challenge people not to discredit individual changes and small tweaks because sometimes a small tweak is the difference between uh, people discrediting it and a big change. So sure. for Charles to change the battle group and its Callus 1 list, most people immediately discredit it and were just like, yeah, it's not as good as the Gargantuan list. You're clearly not playing the Blightbringer, so... It hasn't won any conventions. Then we went to LVO, and he made it into Masters. Everybody was like, huh, maybe there's some validity to this list. So, yeah, and, and I, I was going to say, I've played into both versions of the list, and there's also, there's a different degree of difficulty. So if you are trying out someone's innovation for one game, much like we always say, don't base your opinion off of one game, especially with tiny changes like these, you have to adapt the play style as well. Yep, I have a couple of points real quick, Nick. I think, uh, Amon, when you're talking about play style, I think really what we should maybe change it to is where are your strengths? Your strength is playing the attrition game, whereas other people's strength is playing the assassination or, you know, a scenario game. And you make lists that kind of slide into that a little bit easier, the attrition style, but you can do assassination or scenario whenever you need to. You just prefer to play the attrition style. And that's, I don't like saying that you can only play one style of game because when we're playing War Machine, we're playing all three at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. Just some of them don't, like assassination in top tables very rarely comes up because... you. It I was gonna say you can call it you can call it preference more than play style. Like we all exactly. we all are capable of multiple play styles, whether we lean one way or another. You know, for me to take an assassination, it's either my only out or the percentage needs to be very, very, very high. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep what's my lead safe and continue to grind out on attrition. And for someone else, they might see a sixty percenter and be like, "Well, I'm gonna go grab lunch if this works out, and let's go for it." I think um, you could define it as a mix of both player skill and player knowledge, right? Because even if we have the same style, that doesn't mean we're going to play the same way. I have a very heavy background in military tactics, and I'm also really, really good at math. And so those two combine define how I play. Somebody without those same abilities or knowledges may also play attrition really heavily in the same list and not play them in the same way. So when we say play style, we mean how you play and what tools you have available in your box. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
I think saying you play singular play style is kind of doing you a disservice, in my opinion. Sure. Um, and then the other thing. Let's you know, uh, hold on. Let's let's grab Peyton's thoughts real quick. I haven't heard from him in a bit. <laughs> the thing I was just going to say is frequently in the game, it's not that we have access to all three. It's that you're simultaneously trying to obtain all three. Like sure. take Harbinger for example. Playing into Harbinger, you always have to keep the attrition and assassination on the table at all times, or you're going to be on the back foot in that game. You have to be able to attrition her models, and you need to be able to threaten a solid assassination into Harbinger. Scenario is probably not your best play there, because you're playing into Harbinger, mm-hmm. but... If you can attrition her hard enough, then the scenario all of a sudden becomes very open to you. Right. Like, attrition is one of those really really hard to define things because you don't win by attrition you win on scenario or assassination but attrition leads to either one of those correct uh but, that, but like a scenario i don't think attrition is hard to quantify i mean it's your value versus your opponent's value how much do i have versus how much do you have because that is a win condition like you have nothing and i have everything Sure, but like also, quote unquote, scenario player could be down really far on attrition, but be up for nothing on scenario because they've been doing key placements Absolutely. and killing exactly what they need to kill and not worrying about the attrition. They've been focusing on the scenarios, whereas an assassination person might be able to just slice right through your army and they win every game with zero control points and 10 army points. But that doesn't matter because they assassinated your caster and they could have been that, you know, you could have given up up to six or more control points. Because you still score at the end of the turn. So, like, you could lose the scenario game technically, but win the assassination game. But attrition does lead to both. And yes, you're right in that, like, how many points do I have at the table versus how many points do you have at the table is a quantifiable thing, but it's hard sometimes to understand what exactly that all means. Yeah. I think that the one thing you have to consider with the attrition value too is table position, because you can be completely up on attrition in the worst position. Or vice versa. And so I think that the attrition value also has to count how much board space do you control and your ability to move around and operate in it. Correct. Quantifying attrition is not the point cost of the model because there are like lots of times where my extollers are not going to do a ton of work. Like if my opponent has no stealth models and he's playing a jack brick, that model is worth zero points in that game. It might say three points on its card, but it's worth basically nothing. So, like, making sure that people understand the difference in point cost value and actual attrition value is something when you're trying to quantify attrition. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll even caveat that and say that, like, that zero-point model sitting on a flag is suddenly worth a lot more. Exactly. That was exactly yeah, my thought, where you you know you know your throwaway model, and if your opponent has to give something that actually does have value in order to get it next turn, then you're kind of digging points out of that zero-point model. That's all I was going with, with, like, attrition is hard to quantify in aspects. Yes, if you're up on board, thro- like, yeah, if you're if you're just kind of rolling through them, obviously that's an attrition-style win, but also I feel like there's just a lot of other ways, and we tend to focus on one of the three, but, like, we're all playing all, all of them at all times. It's just, where is our emphasis? Yeah. All right, all right, all right, anyway, boys. Let's we're, get we're controversial. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's get controversial before we move off of this section. Pick one faction that you think carries that stale mentality when it comes to their dojo and name it. Trolls. All right. <laughs> I'll do Signar. Come at me, swans. Come on, Brian. Oh, you want me to do this? Uh... Everybody. No, everybody. Come on, name one. I mean, I can hit three more right now. Like, I know. So... I, I really could. I just don't want to. <laughs> like I said, gun to your head. Like, if you had to pick who's, who's dojo, you think protectorate. Okay. 
Man, my opinion here is super skewed, but I would have to say if there any of the factions are stale, it's the ones that are the most viable and competitive because they're the ones with the least exactly. creativity. So like That's Circle, I'm going to throw that at you. Scorn, you guys are doing some great work here on Disciples of Agony, but when do you hear about things other than Rasheth, Makeda, and Zal? Like we try, we try actively, but I know that right now, based on where we are in the meta and, and circle is starting to see it. Like they're starting to move slowly away from Iona to like Balder one or whatever it may be. For the most part, you see your tournament toppings are like Zal two, Makeda three, Rasheth, and you're not really seeing other things, nor are the lists changing that much. But I think we're still at the point where we don't know what the hell we want to play. And I'm sure People are just keeping it safe to ensure that they're getting their wins or whatever to qualify. I mean, but like, scorn. (laughs) That's right. But yeah, like, I agree with Emmanuel. Like, it's just the top of the competitive tier is really where it's the quote unquote most stale because you have the pressure to be playing the hyper dominant lists. Exactly. And like we, we talked about earlier when we were discussing it on our chat, like, I think Signar is the least stale if they want to be because they could play anything. There's no expectation on them. There where Scorn was all of Mark II. You yeah. never knew what to expect from a Scorn player because no one played the same thing until the very end. I like that twist on it because I feel like, like I said, staleness is not a, we're not calling a faction stale. It's part of a mentality, right? And if mm-hmm. you get caught in this mentality, then every faction in the game can be stale. Yes. Agreed. So I think we've gone over it. So like our little thing was, how do we define it? We've kind of done that. Who do we think was suffering currently? We kind of just did that. And then how do we combat it? And Manuel did a very good job of explaining that. Innovate. Grab a list that you like. Make your own changes to it. Say, I don't like the way this plays because it's not my style. And change it. And try it. And that will lead you down, oh, well, maybe I can optimize it doing this and blah, blah, blah. And like you can go down that road. It takes some time for you to kind of innovate an original list off yeah. of that. Or just go like the route that we did for Kaiju, where it was just like, I want to throw all the huge bases in one list. Let's see what I can do. And that's the origins of that list. And that's still not unpopular. It's not the most popular list, but it's still known. It's a thing. Don't make your decisions based on cards. It's easy to get caught up in quantifiable data to say, this is uh, objectively better than that in this list because of these points or because of what it does. But think a little bit beyond that. Think about the table. Think about, okay, positioning-wise, what does this offer me? Is it an alpha strike piece? Is this a beta strike piece? Is this a gamma strike piece? Is this going to win me the game? Is this going to sit on flags, whatever it is? And don't just compare things point for point. Play them a little bit and see if it offers something different on the table because things will surprise you. And if you have to start that way by playing a known list, you know, that's a perfectly viable approach, right? You want to Mm -hmm. play that list, figure out what you like about it, what you don't like, figure out what model you're struggling with to find use for, and then adapt. So, like, you know, just going back to the whole Blightbringer Harrier thing, it's that Blightbringer is a support piece. You eventually have to get it close enough to commit and your Harrier is going to die to like any transfer, basically, or any dedicated buyer. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're going to run out of models to score zones with. And if you're playing for scenario with that list and you, you have your incremental lead, maybe that's enough for you to make a change, you know, realizing that that armor aura might be less valuable to you than having a few more pieces to play scenario with or having that what what is it like 35 point 36 point commitment split into multiple pieces that you can trade piece by piece also adds a lot of value 32 point commitment but yeah 32 sure yeah 
Well, and I could talk about net values too, and that like for sprinting pieces, you can take pieces without appraisal and an attrition list that adds to your overall values. But now we're talking about lesion, and that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a similar concept as in before we got our CID, I was playing a Xerxes 2 list that had seven Archidons and Tiberian in it. And between a Knight and Defeat and your speed nine, so like you get to commit your Archidons to killing a heavy, and they do, and they get to sprint away. and when you're nine inches in front of their front line heavy, or nine inches away from that front line heavy, there's just not a ton of reprisal that gets to you. Like, and it's a yep. similar concept, and Archidons can do it well, not quite as well as an Aerith, but a similar concept. So while we're on this topic, where do you guys think the poison spreads from? Like, where, where does the staleness begin? Like, where does that mentality start out and reach the greater community? Because a lot of what happens, right, is someone out there who either does well or is a very vocal person in the community will say you cannot play into the meta without x list I or something like that right one person so the way it happens in my opinion is someone wins with something let's do something very recent jake willstrop wins with Saul to both masters and champions at sue with you know single listing the whole time through some of us are intrigued and take the list and think it's very good and promote it others disagree but like they start getting shouted down by the people that have played it and enjoy it and then when you start saying i'm going to make changes to the list then the community is the one that says no usually like, don't do that because you're you're losing blah and you're making it more inefficient in their eyes. I, I think it's so, community, but it starts with one person winning with something. I think there is a level of both. So for a long time, outside of the Blightbringers cast, Legion as a whole has been very adamant that the Legion roster is stale and very, 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 very narrow. Did you mean Blight makes right? Or, or yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, Blight makes right. That's what I meant. My bad. And especially in the Discord, there are several internationally known players that will very adamantly say that Legion cannot play into the current meta. And so there are those players that are well-known and spark the fire that when they say things like that, people that are less competitively minded will take them at their word. And that causes that fail mentality that people will follow through as like humans, we want to socialize with other people of like mind. So we just when we see a group thinking all the same way, we tend to agree with that group. And so it just spirals very, very quickly from there, in my experience at least. I think it stems from two things. I think it stems from the requirement for confirmation bias. I did well with this, so it's the only thing that does well. And it also stems from the desire for people to have validation. I mean, how many times do you go on Facebook or you go on Discord and you say, you see people that are like, what do you think of this list? And they've never played it. They've never even put it on the table. Maybe they don't even own the models. And they want somebody else to tell them it's good. Haven't formed their own opinion. Haven't gotten any practice with it. But somebody can come along and see a competitive list and confirm and be like, oh, that's a good list. I saw it uh, do well at this con or I heard it did well at that event. And instantly they think, oh, well, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. But then the opposite happens. Somebody throws out something new and they say, what do you think of this? And somebody says, well... What if you tweaked it to the way somebody else did this because they already won with it? And suddenly they go, maybe I'm not getting the confirmation from other people that I want. So I'm going to just put up things that I know that people are going to agree with. And I think that mentality continues to push people in playing the same things over and over again. And when you get groups of people who do it, you know, it becomes almost the structure of is something good versus is something not? Do we have data to back it up or not? And so instead of putting something up you've never played, play the shit out of it and provide the data 
and then say, I think this is good. What do you think? Right. I think we could also be better about if you're providing any sort of battle report or pictures and more than just like, here's my list. What do you think? Uh, if you're giving us a clear example of a game you played or a matchup that you're targeting and talk about what your tech pieces did, I think that's more valuable to generate any discussion or to build any sort of consensus. Because a lot of times the like... <sighs> I mean, I'm guilty of it sometimes, too. You know, I'll see a list and I'll just think like this is trash. Like, wh why? Why are you taking this instead of this? And if no one says anything, then it's that's my opinion. Right. Like, I'm not going to go much further to research it uh, unless I'm desperately looking for a list that answers X. I'm not going to save that list in my phone and be like, oh, I want to see how four rhinodons do or whatever. It's true. There are people who are going to just put up trash lists and be like, what do you think of this? And sometimes you have to be like, that's not viable. You know, you need solos in that list to score. There are not enough units in that list to play, whatever it happens to be. But I think instead of telling people something is good or bad, ask them questions. Pull out that data. Have you played this? What was your experience like? Can you tell me how you used this piece? Did this work out in that matchup? Those kind of things will both benefit you because you're gaining knowledge and benefit for asking questions that maybe they haven't asked themselves. Yeah, that's true, too. People will post stuff. And, and when you ask, you know, oh, how did your unit of co-creators perform this game? <laughs> when they tell you they basically did nothing and died to X, then you have more data to confirm whether, you know, they're doing something interesting, what why it didn't work, what else they can do, and, you know, whether it's worth continuing to test. Definitely. Less theory machine, more games. Agreed. All right. Is there anything else we want to cover in terms of this topic? I think we've beaten this one pretty well. Cool. Well, on that then, I'm stalling because I don't have the document up again. Look at me being a good player and all that. <laughs> I'm going to let you in on a little secret real quick. So yesterday, um, I'm talking with all old RFP crew. We still have what we call the OG chat from all the original founders for uh, Hand Cannon Online and RFP. And... I sent them the doc you guys sent me and they were like, oh, wow, they're so organized. This is really impressive. Like, we never did anything like this. And that's a lie. We did some things like that. But for the most part, we were just really good at winging it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're fine at winging it, too. It's it's mostly like the sign off part that you, exactly. you're like, oh, I got to remember to hit all of these things at the end. Everything oh. else you can wing. And so, speaking of winning, thank you, Line of Sight, for hosting us. We are very thankful for all that you guys do and uh, appreciate allowing us to sully your clean <laughs> website. Thank you to all the Patreons. We're up to 90 bucks a month, and that's awesome, and we really appreciate everyone that donates. We will be doing our raffle. That's not a raffle very soon. And enter if you want to get a second crack at winning these all two, if this is up before we drop for that. Contact us at Disciples Agony on Facebook, just Disciples of Agony. Twitter, we're at Disciples of Agony. Gmail, we're at Agony at gmail.com. And on Discord, I'm just search at Pook and I'll show up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Type 2 on Discord. I'm PL Priest on Discord. I'm a Monstrous. I was going to say, and get our shirts. Put it on your baby, put it on your cat, put it on your yeah. significant other. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone could use some more Powerpuff Girls in their life. This is true. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> All right, see ya. See ya. See ya. Later. We now consecrate the bond of obedience. Assume the position 
Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you, sir. May I have another?